there were definitely some nights that I remember of just being awful. But you've just got to grin and bear it the whole way. Because as soon as you start thinking negatively, it actually just makes the time go so much slower. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. On this podcast, we like to talk all things health and well-being generally every Monday and Thursday. If you are new to the podcast, you're most welcome along. If you're coming back, thank you for making a return journey. Would you believe we're up to episode number 330 now? Yes. My goodness, have we been busy over the last three and a bit years. Uh, Do check out some of the episodes in the archive. And if you're getting value from listening, do like, subscribe, share with friends and family. The word of mouth is the most powerful way to get the message of this podcast out into the firmament, into the world. Now, you'll know I like to talk to people of interest, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Jasmine Harrison, who joined us for the first time maybe 18 months ago. Well, first of all, Jasmine, welcome back to the podcast. I think you're actually the first person that I've had twice on this podcast, and I noticed recently you celebrated three years since achieving your first amazing feat. Now, for the benefit of people who didn't hear the first episode, could you just briefly outline exactly what that involved? I rode across the Atlantic um, solo. It took me 70 days, three hours and 48 minutes. Yeah, and I got a world record for being the youngest solo female to ever do it. And three years on, you're three years older, you've got three years more experience. Do you look back on that particular point in your life and think, wow, I did that? Or what are, what are your thoughts now, three years on? I kind of can't believe that that was me. Different things. So I'm now like kind of preparing for my next thing and thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know how I managed to like get through this before, like a few years ago, you know. Um, the fact that like I thought I'd have learned so much more now I'm all the more like experienced and yeah I'm like still absolutely petrified. And how old were you when you started to plan the first challenge that you this rowing across the Atlantic what you were about what 19 when you started to plan and then 20 when you did it? Yeah I was 1920 um, yeah and then when I finished it I was 21. And would you do things differently now looking back? Probably not. I kind of need to take my own advice of like moving forwards of how I did things back then. I'm like, that worked. Like, it worked. And interestingly, I noticed uh, on your social media feeds, because you're very active on Instagram, and I noticed on on your feed that you sold your rowing vessel to another young person uh, from Eastern Europe who is uh, looking to follow in your footsteps. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, so he um, bought my boat Argo to row from... Um, mainland Europe to mainland North America um, and he successfully did it I think in 121 days something like that um, but he was doing it to his Lithuanian to follow a route of which two um, pilots flew and then ended up crashing it's a huge thing in Lithuanian history and he did the same route as them um, which is quite special. So that's why he took 120 days as opposed to your 70 days. You took the quickest route possible. Is that Was that the case? Yeah. Yeah. So I was going um, like 3,000 miles. He was going like 4,500. And so for somebody like you, then looking at him, would his achievement have impressed you, even though you've managed to row across the Atlantic in 70 days? 
Definitely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think any sort of thing like that, especially doing it by yourself. And I've never experienced anything. And I was his only sort of connection to um, the rowing and ocean rowing world. Like nobody from Lithuania or sort of Eastern Europe does this stuff. And so I was kind of the only person that he kind of really was able to speak to about it. Um, and give them the connections and contacts into different things. I was like, that's amazing because I was surrounded by people being in the UK that I sort of had help on the doorstep, whereas he really didn't. So I think it was incredible, like, just even getting to the start line for it. Well, rowing across the Atlantic gave you a taste for pushing yourself to extremes. And the last time we spoke on this podcast, it was several months before you attempted your second amazing challenge. Now, it involved the water once more. Can you tell us exactly what this particular challenge involved? So I wanted to swim from Land's End to John O'Groats, so the most southerly point in the UK to the most northerly point, um, up the west coast um, in the sea, which I managed to do. I was actually doing it this time last year. Um, it took about 109 days from the 1st of July to the 18th of October. Yeah, just swimming up to 12 hours a day, sometimes not swimming any because it was bad weather, but sometimes swimming, yeah, 12 and what's that distance again? 900 miles. As I mentioned, uh, I was watching you, and you because you're updating daily on, on your social media feeds and it seemed to be going really, really well for about two thirds of the way. And then about, uh, about two thirds of the way in, you started to experience problems, especially with the weather. The weather was not playing ball for you. No. So by the time you get up to Scotland, Scotland is known for its was just Scottish weather. It's a bit unpredictable. What you don't really realise is quite severe when you're just on land. You know, oh, it's raining again, or it's really windy. That out at sea is like 10 times, and it's just impossible. You can't be out there safely. And so it meant that I couldn't swim whenever the swell was like over two metres or when the wind was gusting anything because it would take my boat too far away from me and I wouldn't be able to be seen and anything over two meters my kayaker couldn't actually get in the kayak off the back of the boat and it was all just a bit dangerous really so it meant that I had to spend quite a bit of time sat waiting not actually able to go out which is really frustrating and we did everything to try and get it I even I changed skipper because the skipper was like, I won't go out in this weather. And actually, I deemed it safe. I was like, I think it's okay. Mm. So I got a different skipper that also agreed with me and we could push it forwards. I got a different kind of boat, um, a rib, so that we could get to the drop point faster so we weren't out in the bad weather for as long. And it was just trying to do everything, desperately clawing at like each mile for like the last 40 which you know usually at the beginning I could do that in two days and it actually took me like three weeks. So just explain to people when you're swimming from one end of the UK to the other uh, you have a wetsuit on you're in the water you have uh, accompaniment by somebody in a kayak beside you for safety reasons and then uh, you also have a a small boat uh, that you're, you're basically living on for that time and that the whole time that you're doing this particular expedition uh, you're being tracked by GPS. So just explain people then, um, if you have to go back to land, for example, let's say the weather's so bad, uh, then you basically have to come back out to the exact same drop point as you, you left. Yeah, basically. So we'd go out for about four days at a time, if we had good weather at that time, go out and then we'd, I'd swim, I'd get out, drop my GPS point, so we knew exactly where I needed to go back to. We'd kind of drift around, uh, float, you don't obviously stay exactly the same place, motor back to my drop point, get in again when the tide changed. And then after about four days, 
probably have some weather coming through. We've already ran out of water by then. We've already ran out of fuel in the boat by then. And we've run out of energy, to be honest, as a crew. So we've come back in, restocked, resupplied everything, rested, and then head back out to the exact point. So, yeah, I had a tracker that I started and stopped at the beginning and end of every swim. I do a lot of swimming myself. Now, nothing in uh, your range at all. Uh, two kilometres or a mile and a bit is a lot for me to do, even in open water. Um, so you're you're doing, as you said, you could do up to 40 miles in the space of two days at the start of this particular expedition. Just physically, it's having a huge toll on, on your body. How, how, are your, how are your shoulders standing up and your neck, for example? Because whenever I wear a wetsuit, I find a lot of chafing around the neck. So physically, how were you able to deal with the demands of having to swim a thousand miles in space of four months? So at the beginning, it was actually just my muscles. Um, my muscles and my shoulders hurt so much that I was like, nobody like even brush past me because that is just agony. Um, and after that, with the rubbing and everything, it wasn't so much my neck. It was actually my back and my shoulders um, because I was sort of growing and like my laps and stuff like muscles here were kind of just yeah getting bigger and so that ended up sort of rubbing a lot more on my wetsuit I think especially because my wetsuits were a female fit and I was getting shoulders basically for a bloke um and so it didn't quite work I needed I needed a wetsuit with hips and shoulders and that sort of doesn't really exist um so yeah it kind of you just have to deal through the pain, to be honest. It hurt. It was excruciating. But it was looking after your body when you had the rest. And what can you do? Like, really look after it, like different creams. Um, yeah, and keeping everything clean. And whenever you're you're swimming, you said you're swimming for about 12 hours a day. I, I know that sometimes you were swimming very late at night as well and you, you were swimming through sleep deprivation. You had experience of that whenever you were rowing across the Atlantic. Was this time any different from that point of view? Yeah, it was. I was a lot more motivated this time because there was other people relying on me. Like there was always somebody steering the boat. So somebody was up pretty much all the time. And so I'm like, hang on, and they're up for me. They're doing that for me. And so therefore, if I don't do what they're there to help me with, then that's just a little bit rude. Um, so I was really motivated by that and the fact that like, I might hang on, my kayakers got up at 3 a.m. ready to get in, sit in kayak for six hours. If I'm not prepared to do this as well, it was very much a team effort a lot of the time. And so it wasn't as sort of, I didn't struggle with it as much um just because yeah I felt like other people were really relying on it whenever you're in the water and you're swimming as you said at three o'clock in the morning and you've been doing it for several hours what are you saying to yourself in your mind I'm really interested I'm fascinated with your mental strength we've spoken about your physical strength and the fact that your body was even changing uh, because you're you're doing so much swimming but mentally how are you able to literally go through each of the strokes in the middle of the night. You've been swimming seven, eight hundred miles at this stage. What's the conversation you're having in your own head? Or are you even having a conversation? There are definitely some nights that I remember of just being awful, but you've just got to grin and bear it the whole way. And the conversations I was having, always, they've always got to be positive because as soon as you start thinking negatively, 
it actually just makes the time go so much slower. Like, I'm just thinking, oh, I want to be back on the boat. I want to be asleep. I want this. And then you're thinking about that and you think, oh, two hours must have passed. It was 10 minutes. And then suddenly I start thinking, like, nice things. Even nice things about, like, the boat. I'm thinking, oh, warm bed. That's really nice. You know, little stuff like that rather than I want this. It was, that would be nice. And immediately the time just changed. And actually it was like, oh, it must have been half an hour. Oh, no, it was two hours. I'm like, oh, okay. So the conversations going on in my head were always good because it just passed the time. Like, yeah, thinking about good things, happy things, reliving memories. So I could think about my dog for like five minutes it passed half an hour, or I would think about how cold it is, and I think it was half an hour, it was five minutes. Talk to me about the latter stages then of that swim. You briefly mentioned it earlier, whereby uh, you changed skipper, the weather's awful, all of your plans and your timeline has changed. How are you managing to get through that really difficult period? I remember when I was watching you, I was thinking, this is probably really the challenge because physically you're able to do it you're able to swim uh, up to Scotland so you're going to be able to finish the actual challenge at some stage but mentally for you was this the most difficult part of the phase because you also as you said you had to change your boat change your skipper and logistics uh, were a real headache for you as well yeah that was definitely the most challenging and I didn't expect it either it wasn't meant to be like that Nothing was ever going to be straightforward. And at that moment, every single mile or metre that I swam was important and mentally challenging. I don't think I have sort of had so many emotions in a short space of time, as in being so angry at, like, physical people, at nature. But yet, at the same time, I've never been so grateful for other people and for breaks that I did get given. It was... The, the whole spectrum of emotion was just insane. And I've still never felt that angry towards something or that happy as well. And it was all just a little bit, what on earth is happening right now, to be honest? So it was, yeah, it was the most challenging thing. And I'm, I don't think or I'd hope that I don't ever have to sort of have that like that again. Did you ever think or ever entertain not finishing? Or is that not on the table at all? That was not on the table, oh my gosh. The amount of different ideas that there was, I was like pinpointing places along the beach because I was like, right, if nobody's going to help me do this, nobody's going to drive my boat because they think it's unsafe. Where can I get to on a beach, swim out to my point and then swim? I've made friends with a kayaking club there. I was like, right, would you kayak alongside me? Would you be able to do this? And And it was just how much can I push this? I was walking along asking fishermen if they're going out to their pots, who's going out at different points, can I just just leave me in the water, it's fine, and I'll just swim, and I'll come back into land, and I'll just sleep on a beach, and I'll get back out there. Yeah, giving up was not an option. I was so close. It was 40 miles left to go, and I just swam like 800. I was like, yeah, this is going to happen. Yeah, never once did I even consider going home. You're incredibly resourceful. I take my hat off to you because uh, I was willing you across the finish line at that stage. And I'm sure whenever you did finally cross the finish line, you were relieved and it meant so much more because of those difficulties you'd experienced towards the latter 
stakes of the challenge. Yeah, kind of. But in my head, I sort of knew that I was always going to do it. I knew no matter how long it took, it was going to happen. And I think at that point, it was sort of like just life. And so that relief was there. But also the challenge isn't over. I've still got all of these dramas to deal with afterwards. And so even now, it's I'm still dealing with it now. Is the fact that when I crossed that finish line, I had a rib that had like broken down. I am still trying to sell it. I owe somebody a lot of money for it. The support boat, that's still not got sold because the market for boats has just completely crashed. It's costing so much money constantly. Obviously, sponsors have run out. And it's just like, I'm never going to have the relief about the swim finished. But I've already started creating my stresses about something new. And so therefore, I'm like, that swim is never going to have the desired effect of which you'd have thought crossing the finish line would. Because straight away, it's dealing with the boats. It's actually, how do I pay back the money that I owe to people? It's, um, I've got to bring the boat back down from Scotland. Like, that was another month expedition. Yeah, I never really had quite the relief that um, I sort of deserved. So in that case, then, you've done two challenges. You've rode across the Atlantic and you swam the length of, of the UK. On reflection... Which one would you do again, given the choice? Now, that's probably an unfair question, given what you've just said. But if I had to put you on the spot, which would you choose again? I would maybe do the swim again. Yeah, just because hopefully now the resources for everything might be a little bit easier. Mainly, it was, I think, the Atlantic Row. People said to me, would you row an ocean again? I was like, no, that was so important to me. That was such a thing that I really needed to do for such a long time. And I think doing it again would have just devaluated it massively, especially the fact that that was such like an important turning moment in my life, just the achievement of it. Like for me, that was too big, even though it was actually easier than the swim. It was, I don't want to devalue it at all by repeating it. That was my row and that's over. If I was to do it again, it'd have to be very different. It'd have to be a different ocean. We'd have to do the Atlantic with other people or something. Something I couldn't ever replace what I'd just done. Whereas I feel like the swim, I had an amazing experience, but yeah, I wouldn't mind it being different. Now, you made a little reference to starting another challenge. Can you tell us anything about this? Does it involve the sea again? And did I see you buy another boat recently? Yeah, basically. So my next thing is to sail around the world, but the boat is only 5.8 metres long um, and it's part of the Mini Globe Race, which is a new thing on little boats, uh, the smallest fleet of boats to ever go around the world, as in small as in the size. And so, yeah, that's what's going on. And I'm like, yeah, I need to do this because also that's a hopefully an easier way of me earning some sponsorship so that I can pay off the debts from the swim. Otherwise, I have to go to work and I'm working for a lot of years to pay back what I owe. And tell me, when when does this particular expedition start? Starts from Antigua in February 2025. So I've got about a year and then I'm going to set off sailing down to the Canaries to then go across the Atlantic to the start line for February. And then what route then will it take then from from the far side of the Atlantic? Um, Up to Panama, Panama to Tahiti, Tonga, Darwin, Mauritius, Cape Town, St. Helena, Recife and Antigua. 
Wow, very nice. And how long should this take then? It's going to take about 14 months, they think. It's all a bit unknown because it's never really been done. But we also have stops. We stop along the way because we... Um, we don't have a water maker. The boat's really small, and the chances of things breaking on them is pretty high, really. So we're going to have to stop and like fix things. And I noticed recently that you have been getting more and more experience when it comes to sailing because you were taking part in a regatta, I think it was, and you actually won alongside your team there. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so literally last week, it was Cow's Week which is just, yeah, the biggest sailing sort of regatta that is um, sort of in the UK. And so I was down there on a different boat, a boat that's 44 foot compared to my 19, with a crew of like, we had, I think, 14 people, 15 people just on a day. Yeah, we, there was a race for five days um, and it was just amazing. And yeah, we ended up winning by like nine seconds overall. And when together we were racing, over 10 hours throughout the whole week winning by nine seconds is like a bit close that's yeah. incredible uh, and tell us as well that you were hobnobbing with royalty yeah so i met princess anne so i was speaking to her for ages actually which was really nice she spoke to me for quite a long time um, and i felt really bad because she then had to leave because she ran out of time and didn't speak to any of the rest of the group but yeah that was cool and i mean um i'm like a it's called an SSA, a Sailing Squadron Associate, um, a part of the Royal Yacht Squadron, which is quite um, a sort of prestige sort of accolade to have. I mean, it allows me access into the squadron and different stuff like that. And I got given that in April, which is really cool. And was she asking you then about all of your challenges and, and everything that you've come through over the last three years? Yeah, basically. So like the Commodore of the squadron was like, this is Jasmine, this is what she's done. And... She was like, you could tell she was very used to talking to a lot of people, very agreeing, very, oh, yes, and yes, and standard questions. And it was really funny that I would actually say something and suddenly you'd actually, like, you'd see her just, instead of going, oh, lovely, she'd go, oh, oh, really? And then was actually engaged. So it was really interesting to see that difference between her just doing the normal sort of meet and greet chat to then suddenly something got her attention and was like a completely different woman I was like and it kind of took me back I was like oh yeah you're interested oh my gosh (laughs) so yeah it was really cool Look, it's it's great to be able to to talk to somebody that millions and millions of people around the world know from seeing on their TVs down through the years and be able to talk to them and interest them with some of the amazing things you've done. Uh, and uh, talking of speaking to many, many people, you're now a motivational speaker. Uh, you've even done a TED Talk. I'm super jealous. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I'm trying to do as many talks as I can because also it's a way of earning money, basically, because I can't really have a nine till five job with sort of my life. So so yeah, I'm doing some talk. I got invited to do a TED talk. Uh, it was the Athens one. So that was like massive. It was in the National Opera House and it should be coming online at some point soon. They've just started releasing some of the panel discussions. So fingers crossed it comes out online really soon. But it was it was epic. To be invited to do something like that is it's pretty special, really. Something so big as well, like how much sponsorship and how much funding, like and how big that event is like the thousands of people that were just physically there it got sold out within a day 
you know, for like 2,000 people. And what's it like being on stage and sharing your story, essentially, with so many different kinds of people? You've done a lot of different talks now in front of different crowds. Does does that get easier over time? And have you tailored a speech that you deliver each time? And obviously tweak it depending on where you are. My talks are always very different. Like, I even did three ones with Kendall Mountain Festival as like a bit of a tour around the UK. And the people that saw there for each tour were like, that was just very different you talked something completely different and I was like okay cool just because I talk so from like kind of from the heart that actually it depends on how I'm feeling on that day so one time they said oh that was just a really like kind of in like formal this is factual this is what happened and then like the next one said oh my god Jasmine that was so emotional right it was really like and the emotional side of it, I was like, oh, right. It's just how I was feeling on the day, to be honest. But yeah, they never get easier because they're always so different. And like this TED talk, I was absolutely petrified. I was so nervous beforehand. I just wanted to like cry. And I'm like, Jasmine, you are not a crier. But I was so like scared. I just, all I wanted to do was cry. But then as I was on the stage and I knew that I was finishing the talk and I knew that it was about to end. I had like a few sentences left. I just, I was absolutely gutted because I didn't want it to be over. That experience of stood on a stage in front of that many people with the spotlight on you, like on the red dot of the TEDx, I was just like, ah, this is so sad. All of this preparation and effort because I had to do so much work for it. I was just like, it can't be over. Surely it can't be over. And it just was like that. Well, if you continue to engage in some of these amazing challenges and expeditions like you have been over the last uh, several years, I have no doubt that we will see you on the TED Talk stage once more. Uh, Jasmine, you continue to be an inspiration and I look forward to your future ventures and uh, particularly this Around the World Yacht Race. Um, we'll stick a link to some of your socials in the show notes for this episode. But can I thank you once more, Jasmine Harrison, for joining me on the Happy Habit podcast. No, thank you. Thank you. It's been really nice to be back.